Revelation chapter 14. As John is writing the book of Revelation, he's been writing about an evil triad, if you wish, of enemies facing the early church. The dragon, that ancient serpent, uh, the devil, Satan. The beast from the sea, uh, that is a political power from among the Gentiles. It's referring to the Roman Empire. And then the beast from the land, from among the people of the land, that is the Jews. This refers to the religious leadership of Israel who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and instead they worshipped the beast from the sea. You remember the words they said to Pilate, We have no king but Caesar. We have seen how that the first beast is the agent of the dragon, and the second beast is the agent of the first beast. And we've talked about this in the past two weeks. Um, The second beast gets its authority from the first, that is, The Romans gave the religious leadership of the Jews their authority. I mentioned last week that from about 6 AD on, the high priest of the Jewish religion was chosen by the Romans. That is, to be high priest, you got your authority from the Roman Empire. And and how weird is that? How strange is that? But that's precisely what was going on and what John describes. We will see later in chapter 16 that the second beast is the false prophet one who speaks falsely, who appears to be something, but is something quite different. We've seen how that the, the first beast is coercive and powerful. The second one is much more uh, subversive and deceiving in what it does. And we saw last week how that this deception is seen in the performing of miraculous signs, even imitating the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel, ordering the people to worship the, the first beast setting up an image in his honor not literally an image but idolatry and then recreating the world that is he gave breath to the image and again you know people who get really weird about revelation think that this is some type of cyborg or robot or something no it's the language from the book of Genesis God made man God made man in his image and gave him breath And the first thing we read about man doing is then him speaking and naming the animals. So likewise, we see the religious authorities giving legitimacy to the Roman authorities, giving them life and allowing them to speak and have authority. One of the things that John makes clear, I think, is that these enemies are merciless. And that conflict with them may result in death. I think that's one of the main reasons we have the book of Revelation. God's people were about to experience something they had never experienced before. And something that to them, I think, frankly, did not make sense. And we will see this more today as we go along. We are told that the second beast, the religious authorities, would require everyone to receive a mark. Everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave that you could not buy or sell without this mark. We talked about this last week, and I don't want to go into it, and yet this seems to be what fascinates people about the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast, 666. Um, I mentioned this last week. Six is the number of man. 
and it means man, man, man. It is man at the center of things, and that is what John is describing. Also, we are told that the religious authorities would cause those who did not worship the first beast to be killed. And certainly we see this in the book of Acts, how that the Jews persecute those who reject the Jewish faith, and they do so with Roman authority. In chapter 13, John says this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Now, on the one hand, God's people and John's time should not have been shocked. They should not have been shocked at all. History is filled with the pattern of the dragon going against God's people, trying to destroy the woman's seed, trying to destroy the woman herself, trying to destroy her offspring. The dragon using political power to do so. The Old Testament is filled with this. Outside authority trying to oppose or oppress God's people. But then the dragon has also tried to use false prophets from within God's people. We saw that false prophets come from inside God's people, not from outside. The dragon has always been working to destroy God's people. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, I think it sort of summarizes what Satan has been doing throughout human history. It begins with him, well, we could go all the way back to Herod, actually, when Jesus was born, and Herod having all the the boys two years and under killed. That is the dragon, through political authority, trying to kill the Messiah. But then when Jesus begins his work as Messiah, what does Satan do? He tempts him. He tries to get him to forsake his mission, and thereby destroying the mission of Messiah, so that the Messiah would not crush the serpent's head. We see demonic forces. Demon possession, as described in the Gospels, is unusual. And I think we need to recognize that. That Satan sent his demons in great numbers to oppress God's people as Jesus was there. And we have this great battle that occurs. We see the dragon using the religious establishment to seek to destroy the ministry of Jesus. Asking questions, subtle questions, deceptive questions, questioning his authority, and finally by arresting him, putting him on trial. And then as we see, the second beast gets its authority from the first beast. So the Jewish religious authorities put him on trial, but then they give him to the Romans to kill. So in microcosm, in Jesus' life, we see the dragon, we see the first beast, we see the second beast, seeking to destroy God's people. So, one could argue that what John is writing here, this is no news flash. This is not anything new. This is not radically different. This is something that people should expect. But did they? And should they have expected it? You may remember back in chapter 5, John sees a scroll. It's written on both sides. It has seven seals. No one is found worthy to open it. And John begins to weep because no one can open the scrolls. And one of the elders says, don't worry, stop weeping. There is someone who is worthy. See, the lamb of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. The lamb of God has won the victory. In chapter 12, we are told of the threefold defeat of the dragon. That he tried to kill the woman's child, he failed. He is defeated by Michael in heaven, and he is cast down. He tries to destroy the woman that is God's people in the Old Testament, and he fails her as well. So we should not, on the one hand, we should say we're not surprised by this, but on the other hand, we may be shocked at this. 
Because if Jesus is victorious and Satan has been defeated, why is there a problem? Why is there a problem at all? This doesn't seem to make sense. If Christ has won the victory and Satan has been defeated, then why do we even have chapter 13 about the dragon and the beast? Why do we have this? This is why John writes this book. What I want to do today is look at the first five verses of chapter 14 uh, and go through them. So let's read them first and, and we'll go through. Then I looked and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a peal, a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, as much as I try to, to sort of move along in Revelation, there is distance between what we've studied in the past. So you may not remember this, but if you go back to chapter 5 and read chapter 5, much of it echoes what we see here in these first five verses. First of all, John sees the Lamb standing. Secondly, he here he hears the sound of harps. There the elders have a harp. Here they sing a new song. There they sang a new song. Here they have been purchased from among men. There we are told in verse 9 that the, Lord, the Lamb purchased them for God. And here we have the idea of the four living creatures and the elders around the throne. The tone of this passage, I want you to know as we begin, is that of victory and not victimization. That's one of the reasons why I didn't spend, as much, uh, spend more time with the idea of the 666 and the first and the second beast, and which seems to fascinate people. Um, no. The tone here is victorious and not that of defeat or being victims. The church will have to endure incredible difficulties, even to the point of death, but we should not forget who has already won. Look at what John presents. First of all, we have the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. The language here is very Old Testament, as we've seen. Let me read to you from Psalm number 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the, ru the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed, the woman seed. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. So when John sees the Lamb, it's the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, standing on Mount Zion, the implication is very clear. Jesus, as the Messiah, is already 
King of kings and Lord of lords. He is already the ruler of all the nations. And the picture of Christ on the mountain is that of Christ being victorious and having defeated his enemies. Do you remember what Jesus said right before his ascension? It's recorded in Matthew 28. We know the second part about going to all the nations and make disciples and all that. But before that, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not will be some future date. It has been given to me. Then he goes on to say, therefore, based on the fact that I have authority, go and make disciples of all nations. So here is the victorious Christ on Mount Zion. And again, John is not seeing something future. He's seeing something that is present. But who else is standing with Jesus? You will notice that he is there with 144,000. He is not standing alone in victory. His people share in his victory. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. It's a wonderful passage in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. As we saw in chapter 7, the 144,000, it's symbolic. It represents God's people as numbered. God knows how many people that he has. The number of God's people throughout history is vast. In fact, one might say one cannot number them. God has. He knows exactly how many people that he has. Just remember, if God knows how many hairs we have on our head, then he certainly knows how many people he has. And I'm reminded of what Paul told Paul in a vision when Paul was in Corinth and there were problems. Uh, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. The Lord knows exactly how many people belong to him. The reason that it's 144,000 we saw is 12 is the number of God's people. The 12 tribes, the 12 apostles. 12 times 12 is 144. We've discussed that before. Now, part of it is seen, part of the fact that they are God's people is seen in the number. But part of it is also seen in that they have something written on their foreheads. The name of Jesus and the name of God the Father on their foreheads. This also comes from chapter 7. This isn't new. John is repeating something. He wants to get the point across. Difficulties are coming. Horrendous difficulties are coming. The Lamb is on the throne. The Lamb is on Mount Zion. He has his people. He knows how many people belong to him. We saw last week the mark of the beast, which seems to fascinate everyone Everyone thinks it's a 666, you know, either on your forehead or on your hand. It's a social security number, your credit card number, who knows what it is. Um, And we talked about this last week, that it's actually, it, it is a parody, it is a counterfeit of what God told his people in the Old Testament. He said, tie them, that is God's laws, as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. 
Deuteronomy 11. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. God's people are to think as God wants them to. They are to do as God wants them to. But now the dragon comes along through the second beast and he has a counterfeit. And his counterfeit, interestingly enough, I think fools even people today because people seem more fascinated with that. You will notice in chapter 14 that God's people do not have a mark on their foreheads. Okay? I don't know if you saw that. They have the name of Jesus. They have the name of his father on their forehead. They are sealed. They have a seal on their forehead. Those who follow the dragon have a mark on their forehead. And John uses different words. We have seen this as we've gone through. One is an act of grace where God says, here, you are mine. I will put the name of my son and my name on your forehead. You belong to me. The other, the mark of the beast, you can't buy or sell. You cannot do business unless you take this mark. And while the marks are not meant to be literal, one could almost imagine being branded with the mark of the beast. Whereas here one is sealed, one is graciously kept by the grace of God. And so we see humanity divided into two camps. One who belong to God and the others who follow the dragon. John doesn't tell us everything about this side versus that side. But there is something that seems to keep coming up, and it's not mentioned about those who follow the dragon, and so I, I, I think it's worth noting, and that is God's people sing. They are marked by music. They sing. We see that there is the sound of victory, the sound of harps, a loud peal of thunder, and then they sing a new song. In the Old Testament, God's people celebrated God's victory over his enemies with songs. When Israel passed through the Red Sea, they got to the other side. The Red Sea collapses on Pharaoh and all his army. What do God's people do? They sing. They sing a song. I, I'm not particularly musically inclined. I like to sing, but I, I can't create things. I don't know that it occurs to me to sing. I do notice that children tend to do this, though. That when they're happy, or some kids seem to have a soundtrack to their lives. You know, they never can quite be quiet. They're always humming, you know, something going on. God's people sing to celebrate God's victory over his enemies. And that's what Moses does. And by the way, we will come to chapter 15. The song of Moses will be mentioned again. In 2 Samuel 22, Saul is running after David. And David escapes. And what does David do? He sits down and writes Psalm 18. It wouldn't occur to us, I think. It occurs to God's people. But there's something else. In the Old Testament, seven times we are told about a new song. Okay? Not just a song, like the song of Moses or Psalm 18, but a new song. And let me read to you some passages. Some of them may be familiar to you. From Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, 
out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on the rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. Sing a new song. Psalm 144, verse 9. I will sing a new song to you, O God. On the ten-string lyre I will make music to you, to the one who gives victory to the kings, who delivers his servant David from the deadly sword. So when we come now to Revelation 14 and these people are singing a new song, we should realize that it has two implications. Well, first of all, God has redeemed his people. It's a song of redemption. But secondly, it is also a song of victory, the triumph of the Lamb. But we're told something rather unusual. At least it struck me as unusual as I was preparing for this. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. To me, this seems a bit strange. But then I was reminded of what we studied in chapter 2 about the church in Pergamum, the promise made to them. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name on it, or a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. And we've talked about this. Why, why is it known only to the one who receives it? And it isn't a question of secrecy as much as it is the idea of owning. This is my name that God has given to me and no one else can have it. So I was thinking, could, could we make the same application here in chapter 14? Not quite. I think it goes in that direction. I think John is saying something different here. The profound truth is this. When a person becomes a child of God, it is, it is an astounding thing. When one who is in darkness is brought into light, that person is qualified to sing a song that not even the angels can sing. A person who has been brought from darkness to light will sing a song that those who are still in darkness cannot sing, but also a song that the angels cannot sing. Listen to what Peter writes in his first epistle. Concerning this salvation, that's what he's talking about, the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that has come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. All that to get to this one line. Even angels long to look into these things. You know, when we sing the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The angels can't sing that. They can't sing that song. 
That song cannot belong to them. They cannot own that song. It can only be owned by those who are God's people. Those who have been redeemed. But there's more about the 144,000 here. We are told they did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. Boy, this is a minefield if we're not careful. Uh, People can use a passage like this to say, well, see, you know, John's like Paul. He's a misogynist, hates women. You know, women are defiling and, and therefore, you know, something to be avoided. We've agreed that the 144,000 is not literal. It refers to God's people as numbered. So when it speaks of them not defiling themselves, it is not sexual purity as such, even though that is important. I don't want to say that sexual impurity is unimportant. It is, in fact, important. Okay. But there are two things that need to be noted. First, in what follows, if you look at verse number eight, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Those who did not defile themselves, those who defiled themselves with adulteries. There is the first contrast. There is the first point, I think, that John is making. Purity, impurity. But the second comes from the Old Testament. And again, without the Old Testament, I think we don't understand the book of Revelation. At least three times in the Old Testament, the Jewish people are told to abstain from sexual relations because something important was going to happen. When they came to Mount Sinai, they are told they are to abstain. When they went into battle, they were to abstain. When David was being pursued by Saul, he told his men to abstain from sexual relations. It is not purity that is the issue, that is moral purity, as much as it is ceremonial. The system set up in the Old Testament, uh, sexual relations made one ceremonially unclean. You had to wait until the evening uh, and then you had to bathe and then you were clean again ceremonially. Not morally, okay, but ceremonially. What John has in mind here are God's people doing God's work. And they need to be pure. They need to be pure. I think John has in mind both ceremonial purity as well as moral purity. The second thing he tells us is that they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. What does this mean? I think it's fairly straightforward. If you follow someone, you are a follower. If you are a follower, you are a disciple. These are people who are disciples of the Lamb. They follow him. They were purchased from among men. They are offered as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. The idea of being purchased, we saw in chapter 5. Jesus gave his blood to buy us from sin. There's something different here, though. These people are not simply purchased. They are the first fruits. In the Old Testament system, seven weeks after Passover, you would have the the Feast of Weeks. And there it would be the beginning of harvest. And so you would go out into the field and begin. You would just take some and these would be called the first fruits. 
And you would give thanks to God for the crop in anticipation of what was yet to happen. The harvest had not really fully come yet. This is just the beginning, just the first fruits. We are told that Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. He was resurrected. That's just a taste of it. There is more yet to come at the end of time. In the same way, these people that John describes are but the beginning. And in many ways, they are the guarantee of something far greater than themselves when God's people will be brought into the kingdom. I think what John speaks of here is the first generation of believers. Those who have come to faith in Christ during that time, they have spread the gospel as, as far as we can tell, over much of the known world at that point, the gospel has spread with great success. But something is about to happen. But in the meantime, they are the first fruits. We are told no lie is found in their mouth, versus the dragon, versus the second beast who speaks only lies. They are blameless. I don't think, again, it's that they are morally perfect. Because if that were true, there would be no one there. But rather, the idea of moral purity. John sees in chapter 7 a great multitude of people who are in white robes. And one of the elders says to him, These are those who have come out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see, the blood of the Lamb not only purchases us, it also purifies us and makes us pure. It is the sacrifice of the Lamb that has made them blameless. This is the part that I always hate because this is the part where we have to end because it would be, it'd be great if we could sit here for about six hours and get through all of it at one shot, and we can't. So the Lord willing, next week we will, we will pick this up based on what we've seen here. Um, but here as we come to the end of the sermon, we need to ask ourselves, what can we take home with us for meditation, that is, for putting the word in our hearts? What can we take home with us for holy living, that is, putting the word into practice? The first thing that I would tell you is that the Lamb is victorious. While circumstances may scream in our lives otherwise, the reality is that all authority has been given to the Lamb. The reality is that the dragon has been defeated. I don't know if you noticed in the hymns we sang at the beginning today of our worship. It speaks of Christ rising victorious. Um, and one of my favorite lines from this is my father's robe. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. It is very easy, I think it is very easy to forget that the Lamb is victorious because our circumstances tell us differently. The night before Jesus was crucified, this is what he said to his disciples. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, can you see why the disciples were a bit confused 24 hours later when Jesus was dead and put in the ground? 
What kind of overcoming is that? What kind of victory is that? The book of Revelation is written so that we can look beyond what we see. Because what we see may scream to us, this is the devil's world. The dragon is in control. The political authorities, the religious authorities, they're going to persecute us. They are in control. No, John looks up and says, oh, there's the lamb on the throne. Emily read to us today from Romans chapter 8, where Paul talks about our present sufferings. What sufferings? Nobody told me about sufferings. Wait, Jesus said all authority is given unto me. He's, he's the ruler. Why am I suffering? And we will forget if we're not careful. The Lamb rules. He is victorious. The second thing that I want you to consider is that he does not stand alone. He stands with his people. Commentators have argued about the 144,000 here. Some say, well, it refers to the Christians already in heaven. Others say, no, 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 it refers to the Christians on the earth who are going to be put to death and who are going to suffer. I think in some ways the debate misses the point. The church on earth, in God's eyes, is already in heaven. Do you remember the passage from Hebrews 12 I read at the beginning of the sermon? But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Not will, after you die and get to go to heaven. No, you have come. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. I fear that among God's people today, we find two extremes. One is extreme defeatism. The other is this triumphalism that nothing can touch them. The Lamb is victorious. We are His people. We are with Him. But we may suffer. We may suffer. Maybe physical attack. It may be moral seduction. It may be deception, spiritual deception. But things are going to happen. But it does not negate the fact that the Lamb is victorious and we stand with Him. Okay. And then one last thing that I, I think needs to be said. In this passage, we see this great dichotomy. Those who take the mark of the beast, those who have the seal of Christ on their forehead. They have the mark of the beast on them, they have the seal. And so we have this, this great division and if we're not careful, it's, it's us versus them. And certainly them, as described, will attack. They will assault God's people. The political authorities, the religious authorities. But we should not forget something. And that is that they are people. They're human beings. And they're made in the image of God. We should not forget that while the dragon seeks to kill the woman's seed and the woman and her offspring, Satan does whatever he can to destroy human beings in general. I think we may forget that. And you may say, well, why? 
I mean, we can understand why he hates the church. We can understand why he hated Jesus, the Messiah. We can understand why he hates God's people. But why does he hate people? Because they are made in the image of God. And he cannot attack God. So he attacks those who are made in his image. And so when you see people suffering in our world today, when you see people who are killed, the violence, when you see the various forms of addictions, when you see people's lives ruined by infidelity, all these different things, do not forget that the dragon is not simply making war against God's people. He wants to destroy the image of God in this reality. And to do that, he seeks to destroy human beings. Every murder is an assault on the image of God. Because the person killing is killing one who has the image of God. Now the great irony is that it is one who bears the image of God, who is trying to destroy the image of God. When someone does violence against a human being, they are doing violence against the image of God in that person. We cannot forget that. I think we should weep with people as they suffer. We should stand with them. We should sit with them. Whatever it is required. We should not forget that Satan seeks to destroy humanity. Not just us. Not just the church. Not just God's people. But those who bear God's image. sort of explains a lot, doesn't it? The violence we see in our world, the devastation, the hatred, all these things. It's an attack against God. Those who bear his image. I hope that you will consider these things, meditate on these things, and that you will put the word into practice. Let's pray together. Father, the book of Revelation presents many difficulties for us. But perhaps none more so than the idea that Christ has already won the victory. He is already victorious. The Lamb is on Mount Zion and we are there with him. Because in our lifetime we have seen many things that would seem to contradict that. In our experiences, we have suffered, we have seen others suffer. It would seem to us in many ways that if anyone is victorious, it is the dragon with his beasts. And therefore, we need this book. We need John, by your spirit, writing to us to remind us of the reality of things. Christ is victorious and we are standing with him but the dragon has not given up as we saw in chapter 12 he knows his time is short therefore he lashes out and does all the damage that he can may we remember that there is someone who is seeking to destroy us 
not always by a head-on assault, sometimes by seduction, sometimes by deception. But there is someone seeking to destroy us. And therefore we need your spirit, we need the full armor of God. We need your protection moment by moment. I think we sort of go through life oblivious to the dangers that surround us. We thank you for your protection that you give us even when we have not sought it. May we be more aware. And may we remember that Satan seeks to destroy all who bear your image. And human history in many ways is a record of the devastation he has tried to bring on humanity to destroy your image in this reality. May we weep with those who weep, laugh with those who laugh. Understand that while we are under attack, in many ways they are as well. I thank you that you love us. You love all your creation. You know who are your people. We pray by your grace that you would bring many more people into your kingdom. May you use us by your grace for that purpose. I thank you that we had this time to come together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we be lights in a world of darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? And we'll do something we haven't done in some time, because Jim is usually here with the thing, but John has left us. We will sing a cappella. We will sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.